Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Welcome to a special extended version of the Football Travel podcast from Outside Right. This is a collaboration with the Borussia Dortmund London Fan Club podcast and we're discussing the critical topic of sustainability in football. From clubs to fans to football authorities, what can we all do to make the sport more environmentally friendly? I'm joined by Benjamin Fadgen from the Borussia Dortmund London Fan Club podcast, who we interviewed on the podcast last year, alongside Moritz Eckert from GutaFootball.club and Katie Cross from Pledgeball, who run organisations aimed at driving sustainability in football. First voice you'll hear will be Benjamin. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 48 of the Borussia Dortmund Fan Club London podcast. Time flies when you're having fun. And today... We have a special podcast uh, with some very special guests to talk about a subject which is important to football and important generally because uh, climate change is affecting us all. And um, there are a lot of concerns about what human beings can do, basically, to reduce their impact on the planet and also to look at what football can do to lead in that thinking and also to encourage people to reduce their impact on the environment. With me today is uh, Chris Lee of the Outside Ride podcast. Um, Chris and I did a fantastic podcast last year, well at least I thought it was fantastic, on Borussia Dortmund, just introducing my club, uh, the club that I've supported since I was 10 years old. Yeah, Chris, uh, Chris, I don't know who Chris supports actually, I'm going to ask him, but um, we also have um, Moritz uh, Eckert of Gute Fußball. Um, and also Katie Cross of Pledgeball. So a really good uh, team to talk about this subject. Each of us has expertise and each of us, above all, is a huge lover of football and really wants football to keep going and, and in a sustainable way. So let's start with uh, saying hi to Chris, uh, our co-host for the show of the Outside Ride podcast. Hi, Chris. What have you been up to recently? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. It's been um, it's a pleasure and I'm really excited to talk about sustainability because I'm guilty of this. I have done the sort of fly in, fly out to Hamburg and places like that over a weekend. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to catch the train a lot more often when it comes to <laughs> ground hopping in the future, but excited to, t- to hear more about what we can all do to help. That's absolutely great. And Chris, is it a big secret who you support? Because I have absolutely no clue. I'm club agnostic. Uh, I am lapsed Queen's Park Rangers supporter, but I, I and I have my favourite teams in various countries. In Germany, it's Union Berlin, just because I like, had a lot of fun there. And uh, it will be doing a podcast on that, actually, very soon. But um, yeah, no, uh, apart from that, I'm I, uh, very club agnostic. I can't I can't say I blame you. And I know you certainly have respect for Borussia Dortmund, which is deeply valued. Um, and thank you again for doing the show last year. Um, Moritz, um, talking about Berlin, that's where you you hide out most of the days. Um, Moritz, how would you describe what, what you do and, and which is your favorite team? Are you are you partial yourself to Union Berlin? No, not really. My favorite team is um, Werder Bremen. They just came back to the first uh, to the. Bundesliga this uh, summer and they not only have green jerseys but they are quite green as well they're quite uh, sustainable in their overall uh, philosophy and so I support them uh, for years now but I like uh, Union Berlin as well they're a very um, traditional club here in in Berlin and uh, quite uh, good performing these days so and in uh, in England uh, my favorite club is uh, Liverpool of course because of uh, Jurgen Klopp because I I love this guy. So uh, I support these clubs. And what I'm doing in, let's say, normal life is I'm uh, the co-founder of different internet companies. Um, The first one was betterplace.org a couple of years ago, which is a a big platform for social engagement and donation here in Germany. And that 
was quite uh, an important step for me because I realized how you could actually use digital technologies for the greater good. And so I co-founded a few other platforms. And the last one uh, is a quite a small one, uh, which is called uh, the good table or in German, uh, die gute Tabelle. And what we do there is we rank uh, the professional football clubs in Germany and in England, um, not based on points and goals like a normal ranking does, but we rank them after uh, sustainability, fan engagement, transparency, and, and, and all these, uh, let's say, moral uh, criterias. Uh, and that's what we do with the, with the gute Tabelle at the moment. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes, Werder Bremen, welcome back to the Bundesliga. And actually, I interviewed Manny Bogsbüller before he died in uh, what is about three or four years ago. And uh, he, of course, is something of a legend of, uh, of Werder Bremen, but also Borussia Dortmund, of course, being the all-time leading scorer. Last but not least, Katie Cross of Pledgeball, um, who runs uh, an organization which um, also encourages fans to come together to uh, get their clubs to pledge and also publicly um, show their support for good for, for, for good, for doing the right thing in football. Katie, you explain, um, and also who do you support yourself? I know that you've um, worked a lot with Bristol City. Um, is that the club of, of your choice? <laughs> Hi, thank you very much for having me. Uh, that's an interesting question. I did actually used to uh, follow Chris's philosophy of <laughs> just being a complete club agnostic. But I must admit, accidentally, I've started following all those clubs who've become pledgeable clubs. Uh, and it's become quite an emotionally tiring and <laughs> draining experience, especially because various clubs that I was following last season were on the verge of promotional relegation and unfortunately the worst option happened to all of them but yeah Bristol City as our first professional club that we launched with is definitely a club that I have accidentally started following rather <laughs> rather uh, religiously now. That's sensational. The show is about looking at climate change and how football should lead by example and also how football is going to be affected by climate change and environmental degradation which we're already beginning to see um, around the world and uh, certainly it's affecting very big tournaments. So the question I guess to start with is what can football clubs do to become more sustainable and also football authorities like UEFA and, uh, and FIFA friend of mine, Jose Pablo, um, heads up the um, sustainability at Qatar 2022. He's doing an absolutely amazing job with the stadiums. But sometimes there is uh, a big doubt about what the federations are doing, if they're actually doing enough, and also whether clubs are doing enough. I mean, the first answer in one word is, is no, they're definitely not. We're definitely at the beginning of a journey across all aspects of football. So governing bodies, uh, clubs, all stakeholders. We're at the beginning of a journey. And the important thing, I think, before we actually start this and we start being critical about the work that is being done is that we are on all on a journey. And it, the narrative that we all need to own, both as individuals and as organisations, is that we need to have ambitious targets. But what we mustn't do is criticise what is being done as long as it's genuinely be do being done and not greenwashing. At the very outset, at the very least, there are very small things that can be done both by clubs and tournament organisers. I mean, you look at the tournament organisation to start with and you look at the, how the 
leagues are set up, for example, you look at like, the Champions League reform of 20, 2024 and you look at whether environmental sustainability is something that is prioritised in the decision making behind that. And it is absolutely not. Is it a fans prioritising that? And again, the answer is absolutely not. I mean, I know, for example, Football Supporters Europe called upon a lot of clubs and fans to sign up you know, in opposition of this. We saw a lot of a lot of TIFOs being held up in opposition of this and this wasn't listened to. And the environmental impact of this reform is going to be really significant. I mean, the number of games is vastly increased and it's not what fans want. And the environmental impact of that is going to be huge. So from an organisational level, environmental sustainability has to be at the forefront of those organising committees' minds. If we start from the bottom then and look at the small things that clubs could do in the here and now, I mean, there are really simple things. When you look at Borussia Dortmund's uh, sustainability report, you know, they, they mention a number of things that they're doing and they're pretty ambitious. But even below that, there are very simple things that actually in a lot of cases are going to be cost effective in the short term. In terms of climate risk, you know, there's a lot of things that will have a bigger payoff now, but in the long term will make financial sense as well. Some examples of short term things. I mean, if we look at the breakdown of carbon emission impact of match day fixtures, for example, the biggest contributor is uh, how fans get to the game. And obviously, when I say it like that, and the real danger with saying this is that it puts all the onus on fans, and that's absolutely not what anybody is doing. What needs to happen is that clubs as really central parts of their community need to look at supporting fans with getting there. And we see that, I mean, particularly in Germany, where obviously as part of the cost of that match day ticket, you have free public transport. And, you know, Borussia Dortmund went one step further and have made that regional. That type of thing needs to be inherent so that we're providing the sustainable option as the easier option for fans to take. And we need to increase fan awareness around that so that fans can make those decisions so we can decide that we are going to take that sustainable option to the stadium. The the other really big key thing to look at is actually food supply across the stadium. You know, the life cycle of the various concession stands that are there. What type of food is being supplied? Are there vegan options? Is it locally sourced? What are the food miles involved? What happens to the food waste afterwards? I mean, in the UK, we've seen a lot of work around food banks. And in some places, we have real tie-in. Bristol City, for example, I know are trying to collect excess food from concession stands to then distribute um, to, to wherever it's needed to make sure we reduce that food waste. We see clubs uh, in the UK, for example, there's a, a club, a non-league club, so a semi-professional club called Shoreham FC, who have done a huge amount of work through very small changes, but are, you know, some incredible work. So they provided reusable cups so that you don't have the same, you know, plastic waste and you don't have the emissions associated with recycling those. They provided vegan food options. They've looked at how their grass is fed. You know, do they use chemicals? Is it is it organic? So there's there's huge amounts of things that clubs and organisers can do to make things more sustainable, both from the short term, but also with, as I said, those really ambitious long term targets. Katie, do you feel there's going to be a trickle down effect? Because someone who a fan who may not have thought of their own environmental impact or maybe even think that they're they're not having an impact on the environment when they go to a match do you think that by clubs leading by example is the right way to do it rather than expecting fans to take the onus that's a really interesting question I mean personally as a fan from a grassroots organization I think that actually fans have a huge potential to drive the change in the clubs I think that the clubs will be slower than potentially the fans Mm. I mean it's interesting what you say because you all you know there are two 
two kind of uh, threads to this. I mean, firstly, making fans realise that they as individuals have a really significant impact. And I, I think that's really key. Benjamin has mentioned to me before this this kind of powerlessness that people feel in the face of such an overwhelming problem. And that's absolutely true. And we know from looking at research that there are consistently over 70% of people surveyed from whichever group do really see climate change as something that needs addressing. I mean, when you look at surveys specifically at football fans, that figure is actually over 80% of people and over 80% of people want their clubs to take more climate action. But we don't see that translated into behaviour. And then we have to question why that is. And, you know, it is down to that powerlessness that you feel as an individual. And therefore you feel that as an individual, there's no point taking action. Actually, that's that's entirely untrue. And for a couple of reasons. Firstly, when you look at the climate change report that came out in February, it demonstrated that up to 70 percent of emissions could be saved by supporting lifestyle and behavior change I mean that's a really significant thing it's it's at least two-thirds of emissions are directly linked to household emissions but the other thing that that figure doesn't take into account is the actually trickle out effect that your individual changes have so one of the really key things is the conversations that you have within your own spheres of influence you're only truly going to change if you have your peers and people who carry those same values as you and you trust if you have them talking to you about it. So if if each individual starts to have these conversations amongst their fellow fans, for example, then we start to see that ripple out effect. It's not just that you yourself are directly reducing emissions through, say, making individual lifestyle choices, but that effect ripples out. We will also see that then trickle out into the consumer market, you know, as the choices that you make puts on this consumer pressure. And in fact, it will trickle out into, you know, democratic systems because it then influences how you vote and so the impact of just a few individuals within a stadium is really significant and in fact unmeasurable and with clubs making this visible on match day and making it visible that it's something that they are taking action on and they bring people along with them it sends out this narrative that we can all have an impact and we are all in this together which is absolutely how it is you know, there hasn't been a huge amount of people mobilised around this. I mean, unfortunately, I failed to look up some specifically Borussia Dortmund stats, but <laughs> we ha- we put out stats to demonstrate the impact of just small changes when we- in terms of football. So I will, I'm afraid, refer to a Bristol City stat. But when we look at Bristol City's home stadium, Ashton Gate, that's got a capacity of 27,000. 27,000 people simply reducing shower time to five minutes saves the same amount of emissions as taking over 2,000 cars off the road. So even that in itself demonstrates that as a football collective, we have huge potential to drive change. And that's just on the surface. That's just looking at the numbers, setting aside all of the incredible characteristics of the football community. Yeah, that's absolutely great. And and uh, and I've had a little think about Borussia Dortmund, and I think Moritz Eck uh, will also have a few views on Borussia Dortmund, but also Freiburg and Mainz 05, which are certainly leading the argument, and Werder Bremen as well are doing a very sterling job about um, working on this. So in terms of federations, I just wanted to say that um, UEFA did, in fact, um, offset the uh, carbon emissions for the last tournament, European Championship. But in fact, they did that in the face of having tried to get fans to do it in the previous tournament. 
and uh, and failed. And so essentially, it's something, but it's not enough. And perhaps um, we can use the power, the leverage of football as a thought changer uh, or an attitude changer, the way it's been achieved in the uh, issue of racism, for example, um, to get people to think more about how they can make this change. And I think that sense of powerlessness in some ways has actually been weaponized by the um, carbon industry, the oil industry and so on, to give people that sense of powerlessness so that they can just continue with business as usual. But, you know, there's certainly no one on this podcast that feels that it should be business as usual. Moritz, um, talking about Borussia Dortmund, perhaps, or also the German clubs, is enough happening in Germany right now in terms of making the game greener? Yes, um, it's starting to get there. I mean, one step back, and I want to uh, add that on on Katie's words here, um, definitely football, uh, as we as we see it worldwide and globally, um, is kind of the the biggest religion actually all over the world. So the, the power, the, the, the platform of football is definitely feasible of doing very, very um, good change in, in terms of sustainability. That's, that's for sure. And I, I see two directions or two perspectives on how that could happen. The first is uh, bottom up uh, through supporters, of course. And the second one is top down mostly through regulators and authorities and as always, uh, it happens uh, from these two directions um, and they influence each other. What we can see in Germany, especially um, uh, through the corona, the COVID-19 pandemic and some other important trends like Fridays for Future, that is a big discussion, a big change, I would say, in these days, uh, how the clubs, how the authorities look at sustainability in the future of football. So this is uh, something a lot of people discuss, um, a lot of pe- people act. And if you if you look at the German uh, football league, the DFL, they brought together all the different professional football clubs uh, in a multi-stakeholder dialogue and and created a, a framework for integrating uh, sustainability criteria in their licensing uh, structure starting next year. So the clubs they have to measure their CO2 and, and they, they have to yeah, to check uh, the, the mobility of their fans um, and, and other uh, elements of, um, of sustainability. And, and, and they do it in, in, let's say, in small steps, but very important steps. And they, they do it together. And that's, that's very important that they actually help each other in achieving these, uh, these goals. So I think that's a very um, big step from um, this top-down perspective that the DFL actually started this process. And, um, um, and, and I really think that could be an example for other leagues as well in other in other countries. Um, but you need, as I said, both directions. You also need the supporters um, asking for more sustainable clubs from the from the other side, because mostly in in uh, England and the UK, but also in Germany, um, I think. Uh, to be honest, a lot of these professional clubs, they, they act as entertainment uh, uh, businesses. Uh, they, they act like their customers actually ask them for, so to say, and customers is, uh, in, in, that, in that term is supporters. So if the supporters really ask for more sustainable uh, ways of uh, getting to the, to the stadium or food in the stadium, um, not only the, the, the Bratwurst, as we say in Germany, the sausage, but also vegan options and things like that. 
this pressure increases and this pressure uh, reaches critical, uh, critical mass. And then these clubs, or as I said, some of them are entertainment businesses, then they act because uh, this shift is also needed that the clubs understand that sustainability is not marketing or CSR anymore, but it's part of their core business or their core task to do if they want to survive literally uh, the next decades. Just a question on this, because um, I know that Germany, like um, the UK leagues, there's quite a big culture of away fans. It's not always the case in other countries, but obviously there's an excellent network in uh, Germany, public transport network, um, and it's quite affordable, whereas the UK tra train transport, because it's privatised, um, chiefly is is quite expensive. I know there are some clubs like Brighton Hove Albion, I think there's a free travel area for them when the uh, public transport when going to a Brighton match. This is probably for you, Katie, actually, within the UK, is there more sort of a driving culture rather than a train catching or bus culture? I mean, you, you make an excellent point in that, You're right, Brighton is the only one that supports that transport. I mean, from my experience, yes, there is definitely more of a driving culture within the UK because of the reasons that you've mentioned. I mean, certainly when we've been working on a Women's Zeroes campaign with our partners, Football Supporters Association, one of the things that we discussed was the fact that, you know, fans who are coming from abroad to the UK are likely to expect <laughs> easier, cheaper, cheaper or potentially free public transport to get them to the games. And that is just not the case. So I do think English clubs are grappling with an infrastructure that is not easy to subsidise or to make use of to a degree. But I think that this is where they can actually have a real impact. I mean, we, we've seen some good examples of this. Southampton Arsenal, Southampton hosted a game that they called the Greener Game, And part of that encouraged fans to use the park and ride that Southampton had actually, you know, paid for the buses for. And, you know, not at a small expense, but actually they've continued to do that this season just to try and support that public transport network. I know that Bristol City put on specific buses to support fans with getting to the stadium. And I know that there are a number of clubs who have good relations with the local council and work therefore on supporting this travel infrastructure you know even if it's as simple as providing information around I don't know e-scooters that are for hire or the buses you know the public transport that is available there's there's much more that can be done but I do think you're right Chris in that it is definitely harder within the UK to use that public transport one of the most famous examples of a club leading by example is forest green rovers in uh, england um who've got a sustainable stadium or trying to build a sustainable stadium and have an all vegan menu uh, not just for fans but also for players apart from forest green rovers what, what sort of clubs are leading by example you mentioned bristol city as well that's a really good question i mean This one is almost quite difficult to answer in a way, because in my experience, a lot of the clubs haven't uh, publicised what it is that they are doing. Interestingly, they almost want to get to a point where they're ready to publicise it. I think they're a bit nervous about having individual steps uh, criticised as being greenwashing. I mean, certainly we saw last year, we saw Game Zero and we saw Tottenham Hotspurs versus Chelsea playing there and Spurs have shown off uh, their new stadium and some of the individual measures they're taking there. Man City as well have taken various, they've had a, something called the Game Plan for the last 10 years, I think has mm. been their sustainability plan. Um, but it's hard to assess these. The easiest way of doing it, to be honest, is to look at 
the sport positive league so each year for the last I think three or four years now the BBC Sport have released alongside sport positive a league table which ranks the up until this year Premier League clubs uh, in terms of sustainability and Spurs has topped it for the last um, couple of seasons and this year we're joint with Liverpool now that is a ranking system that looks at various areas and kind of asks for the Premier League support on that. Um, so it involves the clubs, asks them to provide that paperwork. So certainly there are aspects of Spurs and Liverpool that you can look at and see. I mean, the types of things that we see are, um, for example, waste management systems. So in-house composting of food waste. We talked about travel with Brighton before. Mm-hmm. Some clubs have introduced um, specific water systems. So uh, systems that kind of recycle water. In fact, Borussia Dortmund um, have an irrigation system they use, I believe, on their training pitch, which uses groundwater there. And I think they're looking at doing more for the actual stadium itself. Um, Other clubs that are leading the way, as I mentioned, Shoreham in the non-league scene in England is one definitely to look at because they, you know, they they don't have much money, but they've done what they can. And Mm. a lot of that is around focused on kind of the grounds people and what work they're already doing in terms of preserving the pitch, um, conservation of water, etc. The other thing I quite liked about looking at Borussia Dortmund's sustainability report actually is that they have also installed solar panels. You know, there's a big conversation at the moment around on-site electricity generation, particularly because of prices. I mean, I know, for example, that one club, their energy costs will have increased from a few hundred thousand up to over a million because of recent energy price increases Mm. so the payoff time or payback time of installing solar panels for example is far far reduced now Mm. i know british Dortmund have switched to uh, an entirely green renewable energy source so there's a whole raft of things that certain clubs are doing i would say that besides looking at the sport positive league table i can't with confidence rank the clubs for you (laughs) because (laughs) i think there's a lot of Areas that have to be looked into because you're looking at life cycle assessments um, if you're going to get a thorough reading. But there are some really good examples across the football pyramid and some just aren't visible, to be honest. Even any data on um, the carbon footprint of, of football fans, either within England or Germany or globally? So this is also something very difficult to pin down. There's a group of researchers in Europe called Life Tackle who've done this and they have done life cycle assessments on some particular, I think, Syria clubs uh, to look at the actual impact. I can talk collectively. I mean, if we look at football's global impact, it's carbon impact. It's equal to a country the size of Tunisia's. Mm. So the actual impact of football is really significant. And the impact of climate change on football is really significant and is something that people just don't realize they don't see the impact so there are specific examples you can draw upon I mean if you look at Carlisle for example uh in the flooding a couple of years ago they were forced out of their stadium for seven weeks at a huge cost to them Mm. and their ground is now uninsurable because of the flood risk and really unsellable to be honest because it can't be because of the flood risk again Mm. and there's there's huge numbers of clubs. I mean, there's a report by David Goldblatt and the Rapid Transition Alliance called Playing Against the Clock that predicts that there's a huge fraction of clubs that will be regularly affected by flooding and games rained off by 2050, with some being completely underwater, including, for example, Southampton, because of 
rising sea levels and um, more frequent severe weather patterns. So there is a real link between climate change and football, both in terms of its own impact and the impact on it. And as we touched upon earlier, there's also a link about the huge and really unique impact that football itself could have on driving change in this area. And even though we wouldn't immediately see that in terms of weather, we would see that in a few decades time. May I uh, also add on um, who is leading by example in, in Germany, because that's that's interesting as well. Um, and if I if I look and, at the, the goodfootball.club, as we as we call our ranking in Germany, I see um, and Benjamin, you mentioned it before, Mainz 05 uh, leading the pack here as, as the first place in our table because they, for example, they're very good in CO2 reduction um, and that comes from their uh, main sponsor and uh, because they have some partners with, with this energy company there. But also in other criteria, uh, one important one is governance. Another one is how many women in, are on the supervisor board. So gender equality They're quite good in that as well. So Mainz is uh, is uh, one of the best examples in Germany, I would say. Another one is Wolfsburg because they um, they have a very elaborate um, and a very um, sophisticated CSR report um, where they show uh, in different aspects what they what they have done um, in all these three pillars of sustainability and uh, ecologically. Uh, economically and um, social. Um, and uh, so Wolfsburg is quite quite good there as well. And and what why what we try to do with this ranking is actually to to sh to 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 create a transparency uh, and to somehow create a, a second track of competition. And for me one one of the, the visions would be and I, I think uh, Katie you 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 think in the same direction as I understand you to to somehow incentivize these um, sustainability efforts from the clubs. I think about uh, creating wildcards for different um, uh, competitions for the different um, leagues or something and, and these wildcards go to the the one club who's who's leading in a certain field of sustainability. And there we come to how to measure that. And uh, just to conclude with that point here, uh, measurement of, um, of impact of reduction, and you mentioned it, Katie, it's hard to measure the CO2 footprint in general, um, but especially in football, and to measure the, um, the how to how they reduce their, um, their footprint and things like that and, and measure other things That's one very important vehicle or, or tool actually to, to improve the overall situation and to create a, a situation, as I said, where you can, as an authority, as a, a Deutsche Football League or others, where you actually can incentivize the best clubs in a league uh, through certain things like a white card or whatever um, and to, to create a, a second track of competition or challenge, as I said. I mean, would it make sense then to restructure football internally? Because I think about European competition, uh, UEFA competition, it gets, you know, halfway to Asia, basically, isn't it? A lot of the teams are play, taking part uh, in this. There's a lot, a lot, even medium haul flights, as well as lots of short haul flights. Which it, it, Does it make sense even domestically and internationally to sort of restructure competitions? What do you think, Moritz? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's again, for me, the question, 
who actually should act first? Uh, should that begin with the authorities and the regulators or should it come from the supporters from bottom up? I don't have a clear answer on that question, to be honest, um, because we all love this fan culture, uh, fans traveling from one country to the other to see their teams playing in, in Spain or in, 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 uh, in England or in other countries or in Germany. But of course, you should look at uh, all these games and the calendar, so to say, the, the football calendar. And I think there's plenty of room to reduce these games and to not start the next competition and the next competition as we see it uh, in the last years uh, to, to make even more money uh, with Conference League and all these uh, crazy things. Um, so definitely there is space to reduce these games. I wouldn't completely, of course, um, um, eliminate them, um, but we should uh, really uh, look at them and, and look at them. What can we actually uh, reduce, and what what uh, does football still still need? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a big difference in approach between the Bundesliga and Premier League, uh, or, or even lower leagues? I'm not sure about it. Um, I think, um, as I said, DFL is is a little bit a role model, could be a role model with these new licensing criteria they just uh, introduced. Um, I think that's, that's quite revolutionary uh, in a global perspective, from a global perspective. Um, so it might be uh, leading there a little bit. And then, of course, you have the, the, the big question and the big challenges in the different owner structures of the clubs. You have this 50 plus one, a rule in Germany, mm. uh, you don't have that in, in, in England and the UK. So um, the ownership of the club and, and how they actually manage that and handle that, that's, that's, that's a big difference as well. And as Katie, Katie's already said, I think public transport might be better here in, in Germany. So a lot of uh, fans come by public transport. Uh, and not by cars, which is a big leverage, uh, um, the big, uh, yeah, a big thing, a mm. big element of reducing uh, um, CO2, of course. One yeah. thing I really remember from my one and only trip to Borussia Mönchengladbach was the sheer number of bicycles outside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. But it's nice and flat around there, isn't it? Uh, so it's quite easy to... Kind of oh, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, no, there, there it's quite flat. Um, and I'm just, uh, may I say that, I tell you uh, that from my favorite club, Werder Bremen, I am just reading a book uh, from Marco Bode, who was a former player and then uh, was uh, in the government uh, of the club. He quit uh, a year ago and he wrote a book about um, Werder Bremen in the last decade, um, going down from a, a Champions League uh, team uh, to second division and why that happened and things like that. And one very interesting anecdote about Marco Bodes, who was a very successful striker, um, that he came by bike to the training and to the, the games at the Weser Stadion. So he didn't use uh, his Ferrari or Lamborghini or whatever, but he came by bike. And I think that's quite a nice example of how even yeah. players can be role models for uh, sustainability. Brilliant. I think what's abundantly clear is that there are impacts that football is having, that it's already that climate change and climate issues and heat. Uh, we're at the moment we're in a summer where essentially most of Europe is experiencing up to 40 degrees of heat, which is pretty spectacular uh, for this time of the year. And uh, it has had an impact on players. We're seeing more drinks, breaks. 
as you said, uh, 3 million impact of Carlisle having to move out 23 grounds across the UK, potentially threatened by flooding and indeed Werder Bremen itself in Germany, potentially um, being very close to the, the river there, the Visa and so on is a serious issue. So there's basically no doubt that all of us are seeing different aspects of climate issues and, um, you know, heat and so on, and, and that football is experiencing itself. So essentially, in summary, a lot of clubs and federations are taking steps uh, themselves. Um, and as you said, Katie, sometimes it occurs perhaps as greenwashing, just ticking the boxes, perhaps just showing to be doing the right thing. In other cases, it just kind of makes sense to have you know, subsidized or free public transportation to matches. Um, and indeed, when the trains and so on are publicly owned, obviously, that's something which can be done uh, in Germany, but uh, it's more difficult in the UK. And it's very encouraging to see that Brighton is doing that here in the UK and also Bristol with the buses and so on, as I see. Um, we've also seen players having heart failures uh, in recent few years. Um, a lot of this can be to do with uh, with heat as well, um, and also to do with just basically the degree to which the players are being pushed these days, heat strokes and so on. And uh, the Australian Open had to be stopped. The uh, Tokyo Olympics had to move its marathon. I believe it was something about 500 miles away from Tokyo just to reach um, a- an area where basically the marathon could be done uh, where there was not such heavy uh, heat. The Australian Open tennis was affected by wildfires and the smoke and so on. And the Beijing Olympics is the first Olympics uh, to do the skiing entirely on artificial snow. Indeed, the European industry is also being a uh, skiing industry is being affected by the issue with snow and that's affecting competitions and so on. So in summary, there is definitely an issue here. Um, it's not an issue that's going to go away. And I think, you know, Chris, you're exactly right to be thinking about things like how could we change the the way that competitions are taking place and also looking at the travel, for example, and the need for how many competitions do you really need? I mean, without directly criticizing, um, you know, do we really need the UEFA Conference League? Does it need to be bigger? Do we need the um, FIFA World Football Cup um, when it used to just be the Intercontinental Trophy, which was played between two teams and ever more and ever more cups and and so on. Just looking very briefly, Chris, at something that you and I looked at, we had a brief chat about. I mean, in Germany, for example, you have the Regionalliga, which is the fourth tier, and that's split by regions, um, which basically means that um, teams are playing each other that have a much closer proximity to each other, and also they have a much closer travel distance. Just two thoughts of mine on this. Would it make sense in England to have a similar regional split in the fourth tier or or fourth and fifth tier? And also, if a team is actually having to travel a long distance, let's say, for example, Dortmund is traveling to Arsenal. Why not, um, you know, have two matches played um, within a couple of days in the same region? So that was a bad example. But let's say Dortmund is going to Munich and they have another match scheduled in their calendar, which is in Bavaria. Why not actually stay for a couple of days in the region and then play their second match 
to avoid that whole thing of traveling back to Dortmund, back to Munich, back to Dortmund and so on. So I think there are quite a few ways that the way the game can be structured, restructured, including reducing competitions, but also thinking about planning the traveling and the scheduling of matches a bit differently. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it used to be division north and south anyway here in the lower tiers, and, and as it is with the Vanarama north and south. And I'd go along with that because in England, anyway, very, very elongated. So if you were going from you know, from Plymouth or Guile up to <laughs> Newcastle. It's a bit of a drive or Carlisle or wherever you have to be going. But I would um, yeah, advocate that there's definitely smarter scheduling could be done. And I think clubs should not be catching short haul flights, um, you know, within, uh, and it happens in England, it happens in Spain. Spain is no excuse of extremely fast train networks. Why can't they be on that? I think there's no harm in exploring new league structures uh, because actually there's probably quite a lot of benefits in other areas outside of environmental sustainability. You know, cost to fans of traveling is really significant in this. And if it can be managed in a way that means there is far less travel, then obviously that's significantly cheaper for fans. Same for players. Um, I mean, we've mentioned things that clubs can do prior to restructuring, but there is absolutely no harm in exploring restructuring. I think it would come with a lot of unseen benefits. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you look, for example, recently at the uh, Hungarian team, I interviewed um, Zoltan Gera, the former Fulham and West Bromwich Albion, um, who's the assistant coach of the Hungary team. When they went to Germany, he and his role as head coach of the under-21s of Hungary, um, they actually uh, stayed over a couple of days in, in, in Osnabrück in the area. They played their game against Germany and then they travelled on uh, to their next match, um, um, which I think I can't quite remember where the next match was. It might have been in Italy, actually, I think. But instead of travelling back to Budapest and then uh, and then back out to Italy again, they basically stayed a couple of nights and trained at Tusklana, a local football club near Osnabrück. And I think that that's, you know, um, uh, it's it not only was a wonderful uh, opportunity for the players um, and staff at Tusklana and fans to get to see the you know, the, the Hungary under 21 players, but it was also a great way to cut uh, carbon emissions and, 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 and miles, basically, by not having to travel back and forth. And in some ways, that would really make sense for me um, if not only did would we have, um, let's say, as, as Chris said, um, you know, north and south divided, as you have at the below the National League, um, you have a north and south where basically they travel much shorter distances. I mean, that seems to be a model which you could do um, at second, third division level, etc. It's just questionable as to how far, what distances the players and fans actually need to be traveling and also whether they could actually be staying over, as I suggested with the example of the Hungary team, um, and staying over for a couple of days when they just simply by rescheduling and then not having to travel back again to the same place. I mean, doesn't that seem to make sense? I mean, Moritz, what's your what's your opinion? I guess you uh, you come across this in the Regionalliga. You have five Regionalligas across Germany. Yeah, I mean, uh, when they um, started that system, I think they didn't uh, look at sustainability that much, but um, mostly as um, other advantages of that system because. Um, it's cost effective, as Katie said, for the supporters. It's not that long distances. It's more that you play against your local uh, derby, so to say, or competition club. Um, and and but now it's it's it doesn't it, it helps definitely in 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 reducing the the cost of traveling in terms of uh, money and in terms of carbon footprint. 
Um, that's for sure. But you could also look at it uh, from the other direction because that's another discussion, a discussion in, in, at least in Germany about uh, sustainability. Um, do, you, do you want to forbid? Do you want to be a country or a society who, who's forbidding things and, and who is not allowing flying to Mallorca um, in summer for 10 euros? Or do you want to um, make actually the, in this case, the, the, the plane um, more sustainable and um, using modern planes and or using modern transport systems, which are much more efficient and much more sustainable? So again, there are two ways of looking at it. And it might be on the long run, even more efficient for a society like England and, and a country like England or the UK uh, to improve the public transport. And to and to and to, uh, to create a, a for or whatever from the from the Premier League, um, which can be used for improving a certain public transport uh, tracks and directions, so that actually you don't have to split, but you have much better ways of coming from north to south, uh, and um, to to improve the system with, with that kind of, uh, of, way, of ways. One area we haven't talked about, and I was going back to Florence Green Rovers again, because they had a bamboo kit. We haven't talked about kits, shirt collecting, because that's quite a big thing. And obviously that, that brings all the sort of nylon and the various other materials into landfill. Katie, can I ask you about um, what Pledgeball has to do with kind of the replica kit industry? I mean, directly we don't. Pledgeball is about increasing awareness uh, amongst fans of these issues. And, mm. Through that, we also have discussions with clubs. But in terms of awareness, it's a really interesting one because, I mean, firstly, obviously, kits are put out every season and <laughs> this has knock-on effects because of the merchandise. Now, if a lot of kits we're seeing being made of recycled plastic bottles, which obviously, to a degree, is a step in the right direction because you're not generating things from new material, but what is not questioned there or haven't seen questioned publicly is, for example, the issue with washing kits made of recycled plastic bottles, you know, mm. that wash the microplastics into the water systems. And we're only starting to see reports on the impact of microplastics being inherent in, in water systems in therefore the food chain, etc. So I think there needs to be a lot of questions around it. Now, I mean, St. Pauli have actually, they, looked very carefully at their suppliers for kit and they decided that none of them actually met the standards that they wanted in terms of environmental sustainability and so mm. they've actually started to make their kit in-house <laughs> um, okay. which I think is a really as a great step I mean I think a really bold step for a club would be to say well we're only going to release a new kit every every so many years because then that significantly reduces impact because you know fans aren't buying aren't feeling the need to buy a kit every season mm. um and we've seen like Brentford did that this season um but it's a difficult one because I know there's a lot of revenue through merchandise I think the way to look at it is as Forest Green Rovers have done look at a genuinely environmentally sustainable kit um as you said their kit is made of used coffee grounds ensure that the merchandise is made of the same so that the impact is minimal yeah there's there's a lot that can be done in this area And certainly there are, there are certain brands offering sustainable options. And if clubs demand that of their suppliers, we're only going to go and see more people springing up, producing genuinely sustainable 
products as long as people are asking the right questions and aware of the questions that they need to ask. Mm. So, Moritz, do you have a viewpoint on that? Yeah, just to, to bring that somewhere on, on a meter level again or look at the big picture, I, I think that um, if you look at sustainability in football, you, you see the same patterns and, and, and pillars, so to say, Uh, like in the in the overall in general society, so you have um, energy, you have mobility, you have textile, you have food, and all these big uh, elements of of uh, how to reduce um, um, your carbon footprint. And football is a reflection of the general society in terms of uh, textile industry. The kids, you mentioned them. If you look at the textile industry all over the world, they they putting out and and bringing out a new collection every weeks now. And and uh, want the customer to 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 buy and and wear it for a few weeks and then throw it away again and so and in football it, it's the same and in in, in the mobility uh, sector it's the same and football is the reflection of the of all society. The big question here is, can football be a creator of change, like an active role of going forward, and pulling other parts of society behind and 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 and. And, and influence them to come with them into the future, into the sustainable future, or are they only reactive and and only act because um, the other parts of society already uh, went forward? So I think that's a big question the football industry has to ask itself. Uh, what, do we want to create this future? Uh, and everyone knows this future only can be sustainable or um, do we want to run behind all the other sectors? And and I I'm, I hope that the first uh, will take place, and and more and more uh, decision makers in the football industry will run forward and 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 be role models even for other sectors um, to create more sustainability. I just in summing up, it's worth understanding what clubs and fans alike can do to either raise funds towards environmental causes or uh, support the environment and, and help against climate change. Katie, if I could ask you first, what can clubs and fans do to, to help? There's a, I mean, there's a whole range of things, as I mentioned earlier, that go from short term to long term. First thing, I'll start with the clubs. So the UN Sports Climate Action Framework is a framework that clubs can sign up to that essentially supports them on their journey to genuinely making environmentally sustainable choices. The other thing is, um, I think Moritz mentioned earlier that, you know, with the DFL licensing, this is really key. Um, but it also, he mentioned about bringing a consortium of clubs together. Now, I think information sharing between different clubs in this aspect is really key because a lot of clubs have tried out certain things. They've found the barriers and sharing sharing this really speeds up the whole process and this goes from you know very small changes like switching to using reusable cups to supporting travel you know and the infrastructures in the surrounding areas but the key thing I would say is to make sure that whatever you are doing is authentic that you are genuinely asking the questions and putting environmental sustainability as an integral part to every single decision that is made and this stretches all the way up to sponsorship I mean, I'd love to see clubs demanding that the partners they work with genuinely address sustainability and making sure that they, you know, ask for the paperwork surrounding this. They ask for certifications that prove this because, and again, going back to Moritz's point, football could be a real driver in this, both from a fan perspective, but also from the clubs. In terms of the fans, there's a huge amount that can done that can be done. So what Pledgeable does is it actually 
rallies fans to come together to make small changes leading up to bigger changes that collectively have a really significant impact on uh, our surroundings, our environment. And the way in which it does this, it plays off the characteristics of football. So each match day, fans make one or a number of pledges to make certain switches. So, for example, it could be uh, switching to using a reusable cup. It could be going vegan two days a week. It could be installing solar panels. The team of fans that pledges to save the most emissions wins the fixture. And the cumulative amount they pledge to save determines their club's standing within the pledgeable league. Now, participating in this itself has a number of impacts besides uh, as an individual reducing your own carbon emissions if you carry out those switches. First, it makes visible the fact that you're part of a huge community of fans taking action. And that in itself not only is empowering to other people because we can see the collective impact, but also as a driver for clubs. You can use those stats to say to clubs, look, this many people are taking action and care. You know, you also need to reflect that and go along with it. Uh, So that's one of the things they can do. The other types of things that uh, are really effective is actually talk to your club, ask them exactly what sustainability measures they are taking and hold, you know, really question them about that. Find information that supports them on going further with their sustainability journey. Um, the advertising piece is, a, you know, is a really key one. Question your club on who the sponsors are, because those emissions are really difficult to track. You know, it's very difficult to actually calculate the impact of a club saying no we're not going to use you as a front of shirt sponsor because of uh your sustainability measures your Mm. drive so instead we're going to go with this sponsor but those kind of pressures from fans to clubs are huge i mean we mentioned the dfl licensing actually um there was a group of fans led by uh, a gentleman called manuel gaber who i think it's i'm gonna get this pronunciation wrong but he he works with zunk of profit football and they were really uh integral in driving that licensing to happen so fans in themselves can take individual measures but if you actually want to essentially push clubs push beyond clubs to do more that's also within your capacity and has huge potential to drive change brilliant thank you and uh, morris yeah i mean uh, i love the idea of pledge ball um uh, that's for sure katie you did uh, some great work there uh, there yeah, they have power, as I said. Uh, supporters, they have a lot of power, um, and um, if they if they create alliances uh, with other fans and with other fan groups and with other cl- clubs, when they collaborate, they they these power gets even bigger. And then they then the clubs can't uh, they, they can't um, how do you say they can't uh, stand behind because uh, when they see that their fans, their supporters, ask for change, then they the, sooner or later, they have to react and they have to actually do this. So uh, there is power, um, and and uh, fans have to have to use it. By the way, not only in football, but all over society. We mm-hmm. I think uh, we all realized uh, in the last couple of years, uh, the latest, that there is change needed, and everyone actually, not only football fans, have to do their small steps to. Uh, to to create a more sustainable world, and then uh, the other perspective, uh, and I mentioned it already, but I want to um, phrase it again: the top-down approach. I think the regulators, the clubs, they they also have to 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 jump in because they have these big platforms and this big influence, and if they realize 
uh, that it's not only marketing anymore, but it's it's yeah, it's it's how we um, how we survive. Yeah, to to phrase it like that, um, then uh, they have the power to do it. One thing um, is, as I said, you have to measure it because then it gets comparable and then it, it gets more feasible and, and more, how do you say, you, with more tangible, so to say, um, and, and not that blurry. So I think a, a big step is to measure um, uh, success and to compare success. And the other thing I mentioned already is to incentivize the best uh, clubs and the role models, um, not by only giving them, I don't know, two or three balls from mm. the sponsor, but to really say, okay, this is this is a second uh, track of competition um, where uh, not only Bayern Munich is, is Deutscher Meister uh, in the in the first uh, table, so to say, but Mainz is uh, Deutscher Meister in the sustainable uh, ranking, uh, sustainability ranking. That would create the awareness we actually need. Mm. I think it's abundantly clear that there are effects that we're already seeing in football, that it's really, really important that action needs to be taken, that clubs should be incentivized. And that clubs and fans should look at the way they travel, not to forbid things, but just to make it more sustainable in order to protect what we have, which is a beautiful planet and a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful game, which we all love very, very much. I thank you so much, all of you, for your disposition and the amazing thoughts and ideas. And I really hope that this is valuable and continues this dialogue. Thanks again for the show. Fantastic. Really insightful. The Outside Right podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Plenty of food for thought around sustainability there. To learn more on Moritz's Good Football Club, please visit gutterfußball.club for Pledgeball. Visit pledgeball.org and follow at pledge underscore ball on Twitter and Instagram. For Borussia Dortmund London Fan Club podcast, please visit mcfadyen.podbean.com. That's m-c-f-a-d-y-e-a-n.podbean.com. Or look for Borussia Dortmund Fan Club England on Facebook. For Outside Right, look for Outside Right, W-R-I-T on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And we'll be back next week talking about football's nearly men with Aidan Williams. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>